are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. How do I sound? You sound pretty good. You, you sound really good to me. So Excellent. yeah, no, we're we're we are good. Um, I was going to try and figure out how to say hello in Portuguese. <laughs> I've I've been trying to figure out how to say anything in Portuguese. <laughs> I got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Um, oh, it's it's like it's like it's like it's a completely different language, Ben. Right. It's it's almost like you're in a different country. <laughs> it is. It is. Do they? I mean, do they speak Portuguese at McDonald's there? <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much everyone speaks Portuguese um, here, um, and pretty much nobody speaks English. Oh. Except for the postdocs, <laughs> Good. the professors. Um, some of the graduate students, um, you know, they, their English is way better than my Portuguese. So, I mean, literally, literally no one, no one in the stores, no taxi drivers, no one that works at the hotels this is, this is speaks be awesome. any English. So, yeah, it's uh, – uh, you know, and, and everything, and I've been going grocery shopping and everything's in a foreign language. So you're not sure what, you don't know what it is. Yeah. Like I'm pretty sure leche is milk. Okay. Um, and beyond that, I, you know, I'm pretty much lost. Well, Hey, it's, uh, you, you probably know a little bit of Portuguese by the time you leave. Right. Exactly. Like things like leche. Right. Exactly. Um, so, so for those uh, of our listeners who might be jumping in just on this episode and have not, uh, listened to any of our previous, uh, shows, you are in, you are not in Portugal, you are in Brazil. <laughs> well, right. And, and <laughs> just to clarify, if you're a listener who's never listened to the show before, <laughs> we really don't know where you are. I, oh, I am in Portugal. Right. I mean, I, I mean, Brazil <laughs> or who knows? Oh, it's oh, it, who knows where anybody is. It's it's very it's very confusing here, Ben. After I mentioned that, I'm very confused. Well, that's that sounds exciting. It it is, you know, it and and I and the day started off really great. So, I, I as I mentioned at the end of our last podcast, I slept my uh, microphone, my shock mount, my my microphone stand. All of that, all the way here, and 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 this morning, last night, and this morning, I was like, okay, don't forget the podcasting stuff. Don't forget the podcasting stuff, right? And I had, I, I, I had, I was like all ready to go, and then, so because it's so difficult to get around, and my my host is a busy lady, so I should mention I'm being hosted by Bernadette Franco, who is a professor in food science, but she's also the vice director of the graduate school or something here. So a very important lady. She has three offices. Um, I'm using one of them right now. Uh, I have her, her most humble of offices here in the food science building, which is, which is actually quite, quite nice. But, um, because she's very busy, um, she had a driver, uh, bring me from my hotel. And because I'm incompetent and, and can't, can't like, I mean, I guess a taxi would be, would work, but it would be very expensive. Um, the, the, the department apparently has, as she was explaining to me, three cars and two drivers just for just for moving visitors around. So that's Whoa. that's very nice. That's, yeah. a, that's a pretty sweet department set up. Y- yeah. Why? And, and it's an interesting story, apparently, why they they only have uh, two drivers because one retired and there's no money to replace him. But there is a car. Well, <laughs> just no just no driver. That's well, that's good. In, if, if one uh, needs to be fixed, if it's in the shop. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess, I guess. But anyway, so so the driver is supposed to come at 8 a.m. And about 20 of, I am midway through my second cup of coffee, thinking I have plenty of time. 
And I get a phone call from the front desk saying um, some word in, in, in Portuguese. Um, uh, Hola. Like, oh. no, like, uh, <laughs> like motor something. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, so the driver's here. No problem, right? So it's like, don't forget the podcasting stuff. Don't forget the podcasting stuff, right? So I put everything into my bag. I think I put everything into my bag. And I head over here. And I get here. And I start unpacking everything. And you know, there's so there's there, there's just two broad categories of things that you need to do a podcast. This is just for anybody that wants to get into the business. Um, one is all of the microphone equipment. That's one side of it. What's the other critical piece of equipment that you need, Ben? Uh, the computer. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I left my computer. In the hotel room. So here I am, uh, here bright and early because the driver came early, right? Um, and I have to get across town back to my hotel. And so I throw myself on the mercy of the grad. So the postdocs are not in yet. It's only the graduate students. So I find the one lovely graduate student who's, I apologize because I don't know her name still, um, who um, uh, volunteers to explain to me how the buses work. And she realizes pretty quick into this explanation of how the buses work is that there is no way that I am going to successfully negotiate the buses. Um, and, and she doesn't have a car. I think she lives near near the university and she walks uh, she walks to, walks to work. So she's like, well, I'll just go on the bus with you. <laughs> so, okay. So. So we take a bus over to my hotel. So that's an hour. <laughs> I get all my stuff. We take another bus back. That's another hour. So it's it's now like ten thirty instead of eight thirty, and I have I've I got two hours worth of scientific writing that I could have done that I didn't do because I'm an idiot and and I forgot that you need a computer to do a podcast. Well, there there are actually three things you need to do to or need to have to do a podcast, and and it seems like you had two of them: the computer not being one, but you also need the content. So logistics wise, you had you, you had a problem, but you know what we had if you we we had all, all of our notes. You so so you didn't have to lose those. So that was kind of nice, right? Like yeah, and I guess I was just thinking about it. Theoretically, I could have found another computer. I could have installed Skype. I've got. All of our podcast notes are yeah. in Dropbox, but it's, I, I can tell you though, I'm already disoriented because I'm used to doing the podcast, um, at either at my work desk or my home desk where I have a large external monitor. Oh. And so I'm used to having a lot more room. And right now I'm only working on my, uh, it's, 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 it's tough out here in the podcasting world, kids. I'm, I'm on this tiny little, 15 inch or yeah, 15 inch, 15 inch screen, oh. um, having to do a podcast. It's, uh, it's, it's hard. Uh, you're on location though. But I am on location. Uh, yes. r- reporting live. from live. live. Uh, well, li- live at the time we're recording it. Anyway. Yeah. Tape delayed. Tape, Tape delayed. Yeah. <laughs> ah. Well, that's that's kind of exciting. I mean, it's exciting that you're there. It's. A, it, um, I'm sure uh, has been a, a nice uh, few days getting to uh, be immersed into the Brazilian culture, and you're in San Paulo. Uh, right, I, I, right. I, I, I'm in I'm in Sao Paulo, which is the capital city. I think it's the capital city of the state of Sao Paulo. It's it's certainly the biggest city in the state of Sao Paulo, and it might be the biggest city in Brazil. So depending on how you figure it, it's either 11 million in the city proper or 20 million in the city and and surrounding areas. So it is a it is a big ass city. Cool. It's I think it's the biggest city in South America, even if I, I, like if if I if Wikipedia. Um, oh well, it serves me correctly. Wikipedia is always correct. I'll, I'll, almost always, it's, it's pretty close. <laughs> well, always correct. Correct. 
at least for stuff where we have no expert domain knowledge, right? Like exactly. food safety. There we know it's wrong. There we know it's wrong. But when it comes to population, it's right. It's got to be right. Um, so that's cool. Um, so what is going on? Let's let's see. Well, I had... So we should. So we should. We should. There's a couple of things that I want to talk about. So so yeah. first of all. Um, as we always remind people at the end of the show, we'll, we'll try to do it at the beginning. Um, if you like the show, please do go in and rate us in iTunes. Um, that's a that's a wonderful thing to do. It helps other people that like the show to find the show. Um, also, we got an, an email recently, and I forget who it's from, so my apologies for not remembering that. But um, of, of a kind of a somebody saying, "Well, gosh, we should sponsor the podcast." So if you if you are someone who would like to sponsor a podcast, especially a food safety themed podcast talk to us i mean because we um because i mean frankly man we're in it just to make lots of money right we are we're in it for uh for the glory uh for the fame <laughs> and, fame and the cash right those, those are the three things that i look uh, i look for out of the out of the podcast out of anything i do right in fact right so, yeah so if anybody would like to uh make us rich uh as we do the the podcast and let's do it let's make well and and if you can't make us rich at least make us less poor because at my 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 accounts um if this was if this was a business that we were running um (laughs) i don't we don't have a business model but the model is buy 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 software uh buy hardware um buy a website um and don't make any money (laughs) yeah yeah exactly but, so our costs, our costs really are nominal, but we would love to have a sponsor. So if, if uh, there's somebody out there that would like to sponsor the podcast, please talk to us. I'm sure we could come up with some very affordable rates that would that would defray our not not huge but not insignificant uh, costs. I mean, right now, you know, we're doing this as a hobby. We're doing this again because we love it because we're we want we want the fame and the glory, um, uh, and, and it's a heck of a lot of a lot of fun. But uh, but yeah, please please do if you if you are interested in sponsoring the show, please uh, please do contact one of us. Absolutely. And, um, and even if you're not interested in sponsoring the show, please don't hesitate to contact us because I think we get some of our very best uh, show topics from uh, stuff uh, that our uh, online uh, un- faceless friends uh, send us. Not faceless. They're not really faceless, um, but, but we don't know their faces. Uh, and sometimes they like us to share their names and sometimes they don't, but that, uh, really is what makes this, uh, this show, uh, I mean, uh, on our side of things, uh, more fun. Cause we can come up with lots of stuff to talk about, but whether or not anybody wants to listen to it is a different story. So, um, yeah, just, uh, just, just, just contact us anytime you, you uh, want us to talk about something or if you'd like to sponsor us. Yeah, and we really do. Uh, we really do love uh, people to talk to us and uh, about the show and uh, what they like about it, what they don't like about it, what they'd like us to talk about. So, yeah, without a doubt, uh, people should uh, people should do that. Oh, and speaking of the show, so we just today added a new feature to our website, um, and that is the ability to subscribe to our Food Safety Talk newsletter. And so this was a request from uh, Food Safety Talk uh, listener um, uh, David Tharp, who doesn't use iTunes and doesn't use um, any kind of mobile device for listening to podcasts. He actually listens at his computer right online. And so because he doesn't get automatic updates when there's a new show, he'd like another way to find out when there's a new show. And so um, we have a 
We have a link now that uh, I spent some time making today um, on the the homepage, our, our foodsafetytalk.com homepage, so they can, uh, you know, if, if you're interested in just getting a, a newsletter from from us, just go to foodsafetytalk.com and then look over there in the left rail where it says subscribe to our newsletter. You just click click that link, uh, type in your name, your email address, and then what we'll do is every time we post a new episode, we'll also send out basically a link. Well, not a link. We'll send out basically the text of our show notes from that episode as well as a link to the episode. So if you if you do like the podcast and you do want to find out about the podcast, you want to find out when we have new episodes, but you don't use iTunes or, or RSS, uh, which is another way of finding out about the show, um, that's, that's just a great way to, to, to find out. So, so please, uh, please do uh, subscribe if, uh, if that's of interest to you as well. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, also, uh, we like to post stuff on Twitter. Um, so if, if you're not a, a, a Twitter, Twittery person, you might not see that we are posting stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm glad that David brought that up, uh, because I hadn't really thought about how people might stumble across us or know, not stumble across us, but may, would know if things were updated, if they weren't using sort of the stuff that we were using to know whether things were updated. So it was, that's good. That adds, uh, adds something, uh, uh, for the listeners. That was great. Thanks. David. Yeah. And. And yeah, absolutely. It's a terrific idea, uh, and we, so we want to thank we want to thank David for that. Absolutely. Um, and then um, also, again, one of the cool features of our new website is you can go in and um, uh, re. Uh, um, I must say, re- you can reblog us on Tumblr. You can like us on Facebook. You can share us on LinkedIn. You can tweet when we have a new episode. Um, you can Reddit us if 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 you use Reddit. You can uh, Google Google plus one us yes. <laughs> Google plus one. Um, and then there's one other icon that I don't really know what it is, but anyway, go to the share button, uh, on our website and you can, if, if you like a particular episode or you want to, uh, share it with your friends, that's a great way to do it via social media. Do you, do you Reddit stuff? Or- no, you know, I don't, but my son, uh, my older son was talking to me recently about, he's really gotten into, uh, gotten into Reddit. I, yeah, I, I think like I, I see, stuff on reddit that people are you know where where people are sort of discussing certain things actually during the um uh boston marathon um bombing and all the sort of chase down of the suspects i i remember following a bunch of stuff on twitter that was pointing me to reddit uh and you know a couple other times but i've never really never gotten into it so it's one of those things where um Maybe I'll maybe I'll do some exploring. I was like that with Tumblr though too. You you're still very much a Tumblr kind of guy, and I am I'm not. I'm I'm kind of out of the Tumblr loop. Uh, yeah, I, I I really like uh, Tumblr. I mean, it's a just a really cool service for uh, basically for microblogging. I mean, I do it. I did it in, in at first just to basically to not to creepily stalk Merlin Mann, whose whose uh, blog Kung Fu Grip is on Tumblr. But then it really once I kind of got into it, it really became a great way to just share interesting things that I come across. Uh, Mike Batts, a, a longtime uh, fan and, and friend of the show, uh, is, is, is on Tumblr and posts some funny stuff. And then I've also made um, friends with people on, on Tumblr, like friends with uh, complete strangers. Uh, so again, uh, Michelle Catalano, who we've talked about um, uh, in the fade, uh, is her, her Twitter handle, but she's also on Tumblr. Um, so it's a great way to keep up with all the stuff that's going on in her life. And then also just uh, made a, a, a new friend, a, a woman... Um, 
um, on Tumblr named uh, B Frank. Um, uh, that's that's short for her for her full name, and she does wonderful needlework uh, projects and uh, of of a, of a kind of a ironic and humorous vein. And uh, so we've been corresponding recently. She's got a bunch of her work uh, that she's put up for sale, uh, and uh, and I bought a a Roderick on the Line themed. Um, uh, piece that she's done. So, so again, it's 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 just it is a great way to to meet people um, that you don't know that then might have like minded interests. And again, it's kind of like Twitter, in that you can uh, you can follow people, but but generally. You know the the distinction from from Facebook is that you're generally following people that you don't know, and you're finding more people that you don't know because of who who follows them and who who reblogs them. So anyway, it's just a great another another example of a great um, uh, social networking site out there. That's I, I think well, you know, again because because we all have infinite time to spend on on social media, right? Of course. Um, <laughs> Uh, but but again, if you're if you're if that sounds at all intriguing, or if you have any idea what I'm talking about, uh, definitely uh, it's worth checking out Tumblr. Cool. Um, and, and I've, I've jumped into, uh, uh, Twitter a little more recently. I don't know if you've noticed by stalking me, but I'm trying to engage more people. I'm like, uh, doing more of the, uh, commenting on other people's links and sharing more news stories and getting into conversations. So it's, I don't, it's not like a, a lot of it, but that's, I, I've been re- really trying to refocus how I'm, how I'm using the, the tool out there. Cause I, I, I think I use Twitter similar to how you use Tumblr. Um, where I'm really trying to, um, you know, create uh, relationships with people that I don't know based on um, more about stuff that they're sharing as opposed to um, who it is that they're they're following. So it's um, it's it's fun. I, I like that. I, I get, um, you know, the good example for for me yesterday was I saw I was I got up yesterday morning. Um, I was watching I, the, my 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 workflow in the morning now is. I get up like in between five and five thirty, and I saunter on downstairs and make some coffee and uh, turn on my local TV news station. Not like the lo- local TV station that's got plays the news from uh, five a.m. till seven a.m. and it's a CBS affiliate, so then it goes to CBS this morning. And so I just kind of like go through my email, let that sit in the background for for a little bit, and um, as I was. Uh, uh, writing something yesterday morning, um, there was a teaser for a news story from last night on mechanically tenderized beef. So it's a little bit of follow-up from last time when we talked about this. Um, and uh, uh, the Consumer Reports uh, uh, story that, that we talked about in episode 41. Um, and so the, w- one of the local consumer uh, reporters had picked up on that story, you know, a few weeks later, and uh, then did an, uh, something on it yesterday. So I tweeted out that to uh, Monica Liberty, who's the individual um, that uh, works at uh, WRIL News, uh, you know, just that that this was coming up, and I was gonna, I was looking forward to watching the uh, segment later on, and then. Um, Ryan Olsterholm, uh, I think he is Mike Olsterholm's son. Who's a, he's a lawyer in Minnesota, uh, tweeted back to me because he's, uh, he follows me on Twitter. So we had a little conversation, uh, on and off, uh, public stuff about mechanically tenderized beef. So it was kind of, it's kind of cool. Like stuff like that is what I'm trying to do more of, um, in my, in my social media life. Uh, cause there's some really good people out there that, um, I, I don't. Maybe I've. I'm taking a different look at social media because I think it's less about me trying to be the microphone for stuff, and more about me finding people that are already microphones and having them be interested and compelled in food safety stuff. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And we, we, do, we seem to come back to this theme of social media on a regular episode on these podcasts. And I, the part of the, <clears throat> part of the, the, the problem that I struggle with, and I, and I appreciate what you're doing with, uh, uh, with Twitter, because I think that's the, the right way to use it if there is any right way to use it. But um, I go to Twitter in part for amusement mm. um, and, not, and not so much for sharing of information, although obviously now that we've made it so easy to go to our website and to share a new episode on Twitter, like, oh, I just click and boom, and there it goes, um, you know, I'm, I'm realizing that I probably should, you know, try to be a little more focused in what I'm doing. Um, but but I'm not, so so there you go. But um, again, uh, you know, uh, keeping with this theme of, of of Twitter, just as a for instance, I had no idea that people were following me for food safety related stuff. And in fact, I posted about the uh, uh, the new episode, Food Safety Talk 41, just being posted, and um, a couple of people retweeted that, including some people I didn't know and wasn't following that apparently were following me. So I mean, it really is a, a great way to to kind of share information. Like you said, both to have conversations about stuff with people, but also to to be and sometimes to be the microphone, but also sometimes just to be the relay or the the amplifier. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it, anyway, very interesting uh, times we live in. Yeah. Well, another another piece of follow up uh, uh, to get us started today was uh, last week I, I mentioned or last episode I mentioned I was heading to Nebraska uh, for a meeting uh, regarding uh Stex in beef on this uh, big USDA grant that uh, that I'm part of, and so I was in Lincoln, Nebraska last week uh, for that, and um, got to live through um, four tornado watches and, and one tornado warning. So that was uh, exciting. I'm not. I, I'm a. Um, you know, I'm I'm largely like a city kid, um, and I really like to. I, I like to observe weather. I don't really like to be in it. It kind of creeps me out. So it was interesting for me when we had a dinner reception at a, um, actually was at a museum in, in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is right on the University of Nebraska um, campus. When we when we arrived, someone in, informed me, oh, um, we have a tornado plan. So just in case uh, you're worried, um, if the sirens go off, which they might, we will all shuffle downstairs into the tornado room. Um, and at which point I um, said to my one of my grad students, "You're in charge of the wine, uh, in bringing that with us, because um, <laughs> we might be there a while." Exactly, yeah. Um, but but anyway, it was you know. The, so anyway, the, the meeting, you know, regardless of the uh, the tornado situation, the meeting was kind of interesting. It was the first time that this group has all gotten together, uh, you know, everybody, and. Um, I saw a few of our uh, of our good friends and colleagues. Uh, Christine Brune was there. Um, Randy Phoebus, who uh, is one of the um, leadership folks on this grant, uh, was there and, and wanted me to say hi to you. Uh, and uh, also, uh, Gary Acuff was there. And the reason why I bring Gary up is because uh, in episode 41, we also talked about uh, this guy, um, the medical officer of health in uh, or head of the health department in Brazos County, uh, Texas, where Texas A&M happens to be uh, located. And Gary and I had this kind of big conversation about the foolishness of the individual as he was eating his uh, taco announcing the outbreak. Uh, and, and Gary said that he doesn't know him and would disown him if he if he did know him. Um. 
<laughs> excellent, excellent. That's yeah, that's a nice bit of feedback. Actually, it was it was great that you could uh, that you could talk to uh, talk to Gary uh, right so soon after our episode. Yeah, and uh, Matt Matt Taylor. I don't know if you know Matt, but he's also a, a faculty member at Texas A and M. Also uh, brought that up that we were uh, sort of taking shots at him, uh, the uh, uh, health department guy in Barf Blog, and he said, "What are you guys doing?" He's our medical chief medical officer in in a very uh, sarcastic kind of voice. Um, so anyway, it was yeah. So that that came up. Um, and anyway, the the meeting was the meeting was pretty good. It was it was kind of cool uh, to hear what what lots of people are doing. Um, I, someone who I I don't think you've um, collaborated with, but but I think you both know of each other's work. Uh, Dan Gallagher, who's at Virginia Tech, does some yep. risk modeling stuff. So Dan is uh, is uh, part of this project and is doing some um, some risk assessment work and so he and I talked a little bit about um his data needs as he goes along and so uh, I think we're going to do some um some observation work and and probably a little bit of self-reported um burger not just burger beef handling uh work both in food service and and, and with consumers um so yeah it was it, it was it was a pretty it was it was an interesting meeting it was good um the the other thing i mean i'm just full of follow up on this on this meeting but there was a really big discussion with the the group of collaborators about shifting a little bit of our focus for the next couple of years on this project towards mechanically tenderized beef um with with the idea that um FSIS is is poised um I think the word was poised to release um labeling um a labeling rule not not labeling guidance but a labeling rule for mechanically tenderized beef and it's sitting right now somewhere um but uh, but apparently it's it's been there for for a while um either with FSIS or um I don't know if it's OMB or or where but um Somewhere in, in Washington, so so there will be labels uh, uh, apparently coming out sometime in the future, um, which is which is cool, and that's you know one of the things that we had talked about was in forty one was uh, Canada's labeling um, regime uh, that that started uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah, that's 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 good to know. I've I've kind of heard that same thing that FSIS is poised to do it, and yeah, I would be very curious to learn exactly where because I'm and I'm assuming too it's a proposed rule, so that means there's still going to be a public comment period. Yes, as yeah. well. So I would I would assume so. Um, and, and so we're we're actually going to shift a little bit of our focus. Uh, one of my graduate students is going to look a little bit at labeling um, for mechanically tenderized beef, and and I'm interested. The, all the discussions come up around consumer uh labeling but you know being that i do all this work in food service my guess is that there's a lot of folks in food service that cook a lot of steaks to how i like to eat them um like blue rare at 120 degrees um and uh, don't know whether it's mechanically tenderized or not um because they're you know that would be up to their supplier so i'm really interested to see what's the best way to convey that information to to that um food service operator and then in turn have them um you know do some risk communication to to the uh to their patrons yeah and i think that's a much more interesting issue um and certainly that's 
probably I don't know where if, I, I I don't know the outbreaks well enough to to know if that's where most of the outbreaks come from. I, certainly, from my perspective, most if I'm eating a steak, most of the time it's a steak that I'm eating in a restaurant, right? I mean, occasionally, like well, just again a call back to episode forty one, um, you know, w- which was right before the Memorial Day weekend. We we cooked out, we grilled out on Memorial Day, and um, uh, we did cook steaks, but by far. Most of the steaks I eat are, are are eaten in restaurants, and 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 yeah, and 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 again, as I I think I mentioned a couple times already, including in episode forty one, the restaurants don't know what the beef suppliers are sending them, and the beef suppliers you know may or may not know uh, the importance of telling that to the to restaurants. So, um, it, it it it's. I think again, you know, and again, uh, props to Canada for getting ahead of this. This is something that, that that ought to be happening in the U.S. as well. I mean, people, you know, restaurants need to know what it is that they're buying. I mean, I mean, restaurants might not even know what they're buying is mechanically tenderized, and even if they wanted to know, there's really doesn't seem to be a way that they could easily find out. So, so hopefully, FSIS can inject some clarity. <laughs> That's the point. Uh, inject some clarity into all of this. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, it's it, it's such an interesting um, issue to me that you know you've got it, it, it's again, and this is actually going to segue into something else I want to talk about. It's again a situation where where the the food system and food safety is not all that simple um, because it, it's not you don't as the the person who's maybe making that uh, that steak you don't have all the information currently. Um, that you would need to know to make a really good risk management decision. And we don't even really know. You know I, I think from the, from the end, I don't know what the, you know, I don't know what the industry's thoughts are on this whole thing. I mean, I, I assume that since they're not um, voluntarily putting labels on the product that they, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this in 41 as well, that um, the, it, because they're not putting those labels voluntarily on there, they probably think that they're going to lose money if they do put them on or uh, alert individuals that there might be a risk, which as the risk communication person, I would say that that's probably a good thing. And then you can tell them how to manage it and let them make a decision. But um, it, it's it, it's not it, – there's a lot of nuances to this one um, because the science and isn't – you know, it's not as robust as, as some of the other issues that we have. I mean, I just, um, you know, I threw a couple of uh, papers into the notes file for you to, to take a look at um, for an upcoming episode. And, I mean, there's three or four different papers out there looking at this product and just with very, you know, strict parameters with some assumptions in it. And we don't, we just don't know a whole lot about it. Um, so, so I think, I mean, it's, it's not a... It's not as simple as just you know just kind of cook it, um, or or maybe it is, but but you, we just don't all have the information of well which one do I need to cook and and is this one uh, any worse than than the other thing that I want to eat? Um, so why um, do you have any do you have any other follow up you want to talk about before I well, jump in? Yeah, so okay. uh, well a, cu- a couple of different things. Um, one, I appreciate you putting those. Uh, um, uh, citations in the uh, in the show notes, and I did take a look at all of uh, the three papers. They're all Luchansky et al. Um, they're from uh, I believe it's two thousand eight, two thousand nine. 
uh, uh, and then there's 2000, uh, 2012. And then I found another one from, from 2011. Again, all, all papers out of John Luchansky's lab at USDA, ARS, Eastern Regional Lab. And again, all looking at various permutations and combinations of looking at this mechanically tenderized issue. And I don't remember, I don't remember exactly what our, the nature of our discussions was, but, but basically what, what his, what Luchansky's group has shown again and again is if you inoculate high levels on the surface, high levels of uh, E. coli or other uh, shigatoxigenic uh, E. coli on the surface of uh, beef, that you, which you then blade tenderize, the blade tenderization process does drive contamination basically all the way through that, that piece of meat. The real question, and this is always the case with, with much of the food microbiology, especially risk-related research that we're doing, you know, it's easy enough to do an experiment where you inoculate high levels on the outside of a piece of beef and then and then show that it can be, well, easy enough. I mean, I'm sure it was not easy. It actually looks rather complicated and involved. But you can imagine an experiment where you inoculate high levels, you blade tenderize, you push the contamination into the meat. And what you see is that you get a certain log reduction as you move into the center of the piece, but you still, even at the deepest deepest piece of that uh, blade that blade penetration, you do see some E. coli. The, the real question is, what does that risk mean for a normal piece of meat that is probably not covered with 10 to the fourth or 10 to the fifth E. coli um, per per square centimeter? That's that's the that's the real question. Mm. Um, and then what's and, and again, John's group has done some of this as well, looking at cooking of those pieces of meat. And again, what what it seems to be, and uh, uh, from my reading of the papers and of the abstracts, you do get kill when you when you cook those so but the real question is what does all of that mean for the normal levels of contamination found on whole cuts of meat what does it mean for normal tenderization processes what does it mean for normal cooking practices um and i'd want to sort of sit down i mean i I think you could probably pretty easily do a, a risk assessment or relatively easily do a risk assessment and i think there might even be a usda fsis risk assessment and in fact i think some of the the co-authors on some of those uh, luchansky papers are, are are from the um uh, the usda uh risk assessment uh research group so i see um, Wayne Schlosser's name on, on the 2011 paper. Wayne is part of the risk assessment group, um, uh, and and some others as well. So so I mean, it, it, and I and I like I said, I think the agency has done some risk assessments around this. And I thought that the, they concluded basically that the risks are are small, but yet we still seem to be having outbreaks. And so trying to tease out what the theoretical scientific risks are from the the practical risks uh, that might actually lead to uh, that might actually lead to an outbreak. I I know, and again, maybe you have some more information about this as well. Um, the um, the outbreaks seem to be, in some cases, linked to needle tenderized rather than blade tenderized. And the issue with needle tenderization is that in, often when you're using needles instead of blades, you are pumping brine in into the meat to to further tenderize it, or brine or other tenderizers. Um, and sometimes that brine solution can become contaminated with pathogens, and then and then and then you're getting actually high level, potentially high levels in the internal uh, parts of the steak. Right, and this brings up a really key point to this because all the discussions that happened um, last week, and, and really all the discussions that I've that I've read about this uh, consumer report side of things um, as well, does not make that distinction. 
it doesn't it talks about mechanically tenderized beef which includes blade tenderization and needle tenderization but it, but in fact you're you're exactly right from the stuff that's out there the needle aspect of things and the brine and the fact that it's that there's some at, you know the needles go in and it's a a, a constant you know brining um, source and as the needle comes in there's some sort of vacuum that sucks maybe some of the contamination back into the brine and recirculates or whatever the situation is that matters a lot more than the than the blade itself so it's to, as a it, it, this is where we get into you know the the problems with with risk communication or at least the problems that make people uncomfortable is really the the risk is <laughs> is probably increased around the needle side of things as opposed to the blade. But let's not try to confuse people. Let's just call it all mechanically tenderized. But if, if I really wanted to make a, a, a super informed management decision, I probably need to know whether it was needle or be or, or blade, <laughs> right? Like, like me, me and me and you, the, but, but the, but the folks that, that we're trying to put a label on that might read it, they, the idea from FSIS is well, we'll just it's it's mechanically tenderized, and the and the um, the risk is increased over a non mechanically tenderized um, uh, beef product. So we're gonna we'll lump them all together. Right, right, and in fact, we we I'm familiar with some of that that language and some of those discussions because, as we've mentioned before, uh, the Conference for Food Protection, which 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 meets every two years and helps FDA to write the model food code, the conference has struggled with this issue as well, including what what conference documents or even what the food code says about mechanically tenderized and 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 it, it is i think fundamentally incorrect to lump all of these things together because on the one hand you have blades you have you have needles that are injecting something you could have needles that are not injecting anything um and there's just the difference in geometry between a blade and a needle and then you also have just pounding it right you could you could have like just just mechanically just just pounding on a piece of meat pounding it flat or, or pounding it in some way that's also mechanical tenderization and, and the risks i suspect are different from those different processes right yeah i would you you would think so because they're 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 all very different like they're right. the introduction uh the spread it's all it's all pretty different um it yeah, so so we're I mean we're gonna do some some stuff on this at least uh, um, in the retail food service side of things. The the um, the big unknown I think for from what I could gather in these discussions at this meeting, and you know, I hope I'm not uh, telling any tales out of school as the as the cliche artists like to say. Um, no one really knows how much mechanically tenderized beef there is. I mean, does that surprise you? It surprised me a little bit because FSIS knows how much mechanically tenderized beef happens at an FSIS, uh, you know, at a USDA inspected plant. Um, the beef processors know how much happens, you know, the, the industry knows how much happens at, at processing. But missing in this whole equation are the um, the folks like Costco. And if we look back to the that Canadian um, uh, outbreak that we talked about in 41, um, the the tenderizing didn't happen at the plant. It happened at a Costco centralized commissary or centralized unit, and and no one's really got any idea on how much happens there because it's in this weird gray jurisdictional area that um, it, it's not a beef processing facility. 
it, it's a retail facility, but it's a retail facility that um, that probably no one's looking at. So, so I don't. I, I mean, FSIS has a number. My guess is it's it's much higher because there's lots of folks that are buying, um, you know, less cuts of beef. And I, I wouldn't say that it's just at, you know, at Costco. It's I, I would say it's it's at a lot of different um, retailers and food service wholesalers who are buying lesser, co- you know, l- lesser cuts of meat and then tenderizing them somehow and repackaging them, repackaging them and sending them out. So it's it, no, no one really knows how much of that's going on, which which made me makes it hard for us to do any sort of um, calculation. And, and I'm more interested in the, how much of it's happening at non FSIS plants. Um, and can we really, uh, talk to folks there and, and get more, um, you know, better information across them about how they may be increasing risk and what they need to do to clean and sanitize, uh, those blades or needles or whatever they might be using. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And, and probably before we leave the, uh, the follow-up portion of the show, um, we should probably do bug trivia. Bug trivia, Excellent, excellent. Um, and and I think uh, it, it would probably be most appropriate to to uh, given all of our our discussions about E. coli one five seven H seven to make the bug this week for bug trivia be E. coli one five seven H seven. Um, and so I will uh, read uh, read to you uh, from uh, this bug trivia post or this bug trivia message, which was compiled by a uh, friend of the show, uh, Carl Custer. And this is uh, we're skipping a few in the order that. Carl has them presented here, and this is the uh, the last one in his list. Although we can, we've still got uh, looks like two or three more uh, bug trivia's to, to take us uh, take us forward over the next few episodes. Um, so, um, and and again, this is a, so we're talking about E. coli one five seven H seven, and we'll we'll also um, mention uh, again John Luchansky's name. So, uh, uh, and and so obviously John is a longtime O one five seven H seven researcher. Um, there was a uh, an outbreak in 1994 linked to fermented dry salami, and uh, the industry uh, so linked to this particular organism. The industry was looking for solutions. The, there was a blue ribbon task force from the National National Cattlemen's Beef Association, and they funded research at Food Research Institute or FRI. Um, and uh, John Luchansky, uh, before he went to USDA, was a researcher at at FRI. A lot a lot of great uh, food scientists and food safety researchers. Researchers have work at FRI and have come out of FRI, um, and uh, it, it said that uh, what uh, John did, John did research um, looking at um, a current method, a current um, um, USDA method um, for um, inactivating pathogens in fermented sausage, and that particular reference is nine. CFR, where CFR stands for the Code of Federal, Code of Federal Regulations, 318.10C3, uh, of course, as, as we Three. all know it. Um, I'll, I'll, Don't <laughs> exactly. get it confused with four. Right, but it's but it's also called method number seven <laughs> because you know why 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 not is um, that and, is that like mambo number five? It is. It's exactly like mambo number five. <laughs> 
<laughs> we'll link to uh, we'll link to Mambo number five um, uh, in the show notes, and maybe Method number seven if we can find it. Um, um, and so there was a nineteen. So this the outbreak was in ninety four. Uh, there was a nineteen ninety six booklet published by Nickerson et al. Uh, giving time, fermentation temperature, and pH that would result in a five log kill for E. coli one five seven H seven using this low heat method of producing salami called Method number seven. And then uh, uh, Carl goes on to note in his uh, bug trivia file that those results were later published in peer-reviewed journals by Calicio uh, Glue, sorry for butchering the name there, uh, Dr. Calicio Glue, if you're listening, um, uh, plus uh, Chuck Casper and uh, John Luchansky. So um, anyway, that's a little bit of bug trivia for this week on E. coli 0157H7. Bug trivia. Um, before, this is a bu- uh, after dark for bug trivia. Um, an after dark within the show before the real after dark. Okay. I, I just finished on this, on this trip as I was flying out to Lincoln, I, I finished, um, the, the book poisoned. Um, and I know you had talked about it uh, a while ago, maybe on the, on the podcast. Is that correct? Do you know what I'm talking I, about? I, yes. I, I did. I did. This is a, this is a book and you're, you're breaking up a little bit on, oh. on my end. Hopefully I'm sounding okay to you. You sound but, fine. But, um, yes, yes in, indeed, this is, uh, this is a, a book, uh, and I, the author's name escapes me, but basically Bill Marler features very prominently in it. And it is about the Jack in the Box outbreak and, and this struggling young, uh, Seattle lawyer named, uh, Bill Marler who, who basically makes his bones on this particular case. It's, it's a good, fast, uh, easy read, uh, highly recommended. Yeah, uh, Jeff Benedict is the uh, is the author, and um, it, it it tells this story. You know, I, I I've not been in food safety as long as you have, Don, and I <laughs> not a shot at your at your age. I've already I do that enough, um, but I did not. I mean, I I knew. I've known about this outbreak, obviously, as sort of the the landmark outbreak for revamping how we look at food safety, and, and a lot of a lot of focus is put into that. This, the book actually did a really great job telling the story behind it, um, and and the story, you know, Bill's story is, is interesting, uh, you know, as a sort of going through um, and creating his his law firm, but. I really thought that the story around um, the the families, I mean, just this, it all happened in the right spot. I mean, it, it, they just happened to have um, a, a really keen uh, person at a, a Washington pediatric um, uh, a pediatric unit in a, in a hospital who knew a little bit about HUS and knew a little bit about pathogenic E. coli and in a one five seven. And they happened to, you know, have, um, some very sick kids in that, um, in that area. And also a, a really keen lawyer who was, um, you know, trying to, um, you know, at a point in his career where he was looking to to do something um, bigger, and you know, and, and and be a partner. Like I mean, all this stuff it happened in one, at one time out of just a bunch of you know convenience or geography or whatever, and has led to um, uh, you know how we how we do stuff in in food safety. And it was it, it's a very um, it was a very I, I don't know it was a very emotional read for me. 
Um, you know, there was, there's a lot of description of, of very sick kids and very sick people. Um, and, um, you know, in, in industry that's, that's sort of struggling with how to manage this, um, this issue there. I mean, a lot of it, it, it was good because I think I see a lot of the same struggles that are happening that happened in this book that were told as, you know, 20 years later, um, are the same things that, that I encounter in, in other, um, sectors and, um, you know, certain, certain areas of fresh produce and small producers, I think are, are, uh, running into the same thing that, that the beef industry had to deal with the beef and food service industry had to deal with. And, uh, back in 93, it's, it's actually, uh, um, when, when I was reading it, I was like, man, all my grad students need to read this. Uh, so I went out and got a, a few copies for them. Oh, good. Good for you. Yeah. It's, it's really, I mean, it's really is a good, a good read, whether, what, whatever your point of view on the, on, uh, you know, about food poisoning in the food industry. And it really, I think that the author really goes out of his way to be as fair as possible to Jack in the Box. Like, Ooh. I didn't feel like it was just like a, a just a, a, like a let's just beat up on Jack in the Box, you know? I mean, it was just really a kind of a perfect storm of bad things coming together, but also good things coming out of it and the right people at the right time to kind of put these pieces together. So, yeah, and really a, a seminal time in, in our industry in terms of the food industry and food safety in particular. Yeah, and just a, 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 like a cautionary tale in a you know in a weird way to to others who are you know grappling with um with issues you know i think about the um stuff that we talked about in 41 around hazelnuts um and the nut industry um the the same kind of thing that that man this you know folks that are not exposed to the how the legal world works can really get hammered um if, if they're part of an outbreak and 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 not you know come out not looking good not just because they didn't know what to do but but because they they didn't you know pay attention or put in the time to figure out where the where the risks were it was it's it's a it's a good read it was um you know i had read through parts of it uh, a while ago. And then I, over the last couple of flights that I've had, I, I was able to, to go back through and read the whole thing. And it was, uh, it, it's, it's well worth the investment of time for anybody in the food industry or in food safety. So, cool. yeah. And I, I would say too, it's, it's, it's a relatively fast and easy mm-hmm. read. It's not a painful, long, slow slog. Like some, some books uh, seem to be, um, it really, uh, it really is, uh, it really is an easy read. And again, well worth, well worth reading as a cautionary tale. I'd agree. Um, speaking of uh, painful slow slow slogs of a read, <laughs> nice segue. It's not even in the uh, in the show notes, but in my hand right now, I have Michael Pollan's book Cooked. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and and the reason so so here's here's the deal with Cooked. Um, so I finished I finished Poisoned, uh, and I also in my my other hand currently it's uh, it's a good thing this isn't a video podcast, but um, I have Michael Moss's book Salt Sugar Fat, I, I, and a third book in my in my third hand um call a book that you recommended uh to me medical detectives by burton burton roche 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 i don't know if that's i think that's the uh portuguese pronunciation of that french name um and anyway i've got i don't often get hardcover 
or hard copy books or hardcover books um, with the advent of uh, the iPad. But uh, I gave a, a guest lecture in a, in a class um, at UNC Chapel Hill, and they have some honorariums, and said, could we buy you anything uh, for professional development? I said, I would like these three books. So anyway, um, I started reading Cooked, uh, and, uh, as, and it is a painful slog. I don't know if you've had a chance to take a look at it. Um, I, I have not. It's, um, it's dramatic. Um, and, and, and I'll, let me, let me give you a passage that, that caught my eye, uh, about three days ago. And then, um, coincidentally or fate, maybe, uh, someone emailed me about the exact passage, uh, yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Bizarre, right? Yeah. Okay. So, um, there's a, uh, there's a section in cooked where Paulin talks about, um, barbecue pits in North, you know, North Carolina barbecue pits specifically about how the, the history of, uh, of the state that I live in, um, is, is all about, uh, pig pickings and, um, you know, family gatherings and community gatherings all around whole hog and putting it in a, um, sometimes in a, in a smoke, in, in a, an outbuilding, uh, on a farm, sometimes, uh, outside on a, um, on a smoker or in a pit. Uh, and now I just have to ask now an outbuilding, that's not the same as an outhouse. That's right? correct. That is correct. Okay. Um, yes, no, it's like, like a, like, like a smokehouse. In fact, um, you know, some, sometimes that, uh, that's how people uh, did it, depending on where you are in the state. Um, anyway, there, there's a passage in this book where Paulin uh, sort of paints this picture of of drama of um, North Carolina regulators had to, um, you know, change the health rules in North Carolina uh, to allow for um, barbecue pits. I mean, that's the, that's at the, uh, at the basis of his point, but he writes it in a way that, that kind of says there are two separate health codes, one for barbecue outlets or barbecue restaurants and one for normal restaurants. And the one that the bar, you know, and that, that there was, it was hot and political and, um, the, uh, barbecue, uh, restaurant ones, it kind of implies that it's like a lesser standard. So someone actually emailed me, um, about this yesterday, uh, with the, um, the subject title is health code question. Um, and so, uh, the, here, let me read the email to you. Hi, Ben. At lunch today, we were talking about the book cooked, um, by Michael Pollan. To quote a passage, quote, it was difficult to regard this pit room filthy and littered with cinders as a kitchen. But of course, that is what it is. And that's why the state of North Carolina has been forced to choose between the equitable enforcement of its health codes and the survival of the whole hog barbecue. Sacred local tradition that it is, barbecue has won, at least for the time being. So, well, Ben, Ben, that's because of the powerful barbecue lobby. It's, well, look, there is a powerful barbecue lobby. Let's not make light of it. And in fact, we probably shouldn't even mention it because they know where I live. I'm sure. <laughs> um, but so, so the question was from, from they this. Burn, in, they burn pigs' heads on your lawn, right? Yeah, yeah. There's. I, I wake up to a snout on my on my pillow, <laughs> and and pigs' feet in in my, uh, you know, toothbrush uh, holder. Or something. Yes, yes. Um, so the question that came along with that passage was, we questioned if there was a separate health code for these facilities or if it just meant people look the other way. 
uh, when it came to barbecue, barbecue uh, uh, places. Uh, and so they asked me if that was the case. So I went back and, and it's, and it's not the case. And I'll, I'll link to this um, in the show notes uh, or I'll send it to, to Andreas to link in the show notes. There, what, what actually happened um, to, to go back into to history, as far as I can tell is um, prior to 2012, North Carolina had adopted the 1976 uh, version of the food code. Um, and and had uh, updated it with amendments uh, over time. So there are different things that they kept the science up, but it was the basis was that 76 food code. And in 1980, there were provisions that were added to the to the law um, because barbecue restaurants were running into problems around um, issues regarding floor ceilings and walls. Um, and so they added a very specific um, section to the to the food to the, to our current state uh, or to then the current state regulations when Paul wrote the book um, that said uh, if it's a barbecue place and they actually call them supplemental cooking rooms um, walls it can be in an, in a, an adjacent building it doesn't have to be associated with the um, with the restaurant walls and ceilings shall be kept clean and in good repair floors shall be constructed of easily cleanable concrete or equally uh, or equal and graded to the drain. Water under pressure shall be provided for floor cleaning. A ventilation system uh, shall prevent grease or condensation for collecting on the walls and ceilings. A hand-washing sink needs to be provided uh, as per the rest of the food code. Um, lighting needs to comply with the rest of the food code. And then the, the biggest part uh, of this, um, which which Michael Pollan in his new nuanced writing kind of missed out, is that all the food that comes out of that supplemental cooking room needs to be processed in an area that meets the requirements for operation and construction of a, of a kitchen. So so he kind of makes it sound and, – and I caught it when I read it, and I was like, I don't know what, exactly what he's talking about. And then when someone emailed me about it, I was like, well, let me go into the, to the rules and see exactly where this came from. But it's – I mean um, – his so my response to to the individual was um pollen in this book similar to a lot of his writing gets it sort of right with the extra flair for the dramatic <laughs> um and so and and i go to say that you know the barbecue pits as they're they're called uh weren't included specifically in the food code so in north carolina because we have so many of them we had to add a provision on how to handle and regulate them um in a, in a risk-based uh, uh way sort of saying look this isn't a kitchen doesn't have to be attached but um here's how you're going to move that product uh, back and forth so right right and that, and that makes perfect sense right because essentially if you're cooking it properly in this this out outbuilding right almost at outhouse you're cooking yeah. in this outbuilding the supplemental um, cooking uh, room <laughs> then you need to bring it you know and it's coming out of there cooked right so i'm assuming yeah. you've got some sort of temperature controls you bring it out of that into some area for further handling slicing dicing etc i mean that just makes perfect sense right i mean yeah so it, it's not, it, it helps to make a nice dramatic point but it kind of misses the the essence of, of of why the code is the way that it is and it, and it kind of makes it sound like the pork lobby or the barbecue lobby jumped in and was like no 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 hands off our barbecue barbecue pits where in fact the good folks at the uh, at the state health department kind of said look we the the code as it's currently written doesn't meet doesn't help us with a whole bunch of facilities that we currently regulate so we're going to need to write something that's specific now what can we all agree on that would reduce risk and and so he kind of misses that 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 portion of things so well because that's subtle and nuanced and 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 probably not uh doesn't get people all fired up 
uh, pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> so nice. Yeah. Well, so I was googling around to try to find uh, the thing that you mentioned, and I didn't find it. But I have to say, uh, given that we mentioned it before on the show, um, we'll we'll call attention to the amazing uh, the amazing website called AmazingRibs.com, which is run by uh, the husband of uh, famous food microbiologist Mary Lou Tortorello, and uh, we'll link to this in the show notes. There is a wonderful, very extensive page, as are so many have, of the pages on that website, entitled Barbecue History. So you can, you, you can read about all about the history of barbecue, and, and, and apparently politics are involved because uh, according to, uh, according to the, the article, uh, uh, LBJ, uh, the president, uh, U.S. President uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ used barbecue to advance his policies. Well, so there you uh, go. And while we're while we're talking about foods, about uh, uh, books, about cooking, I think I mentioned this on a past podcast. But if I didn't, again, um, just in terms of giving you great things to read, um, I mentioned uh, I, I want to mention now this book called Catching Fire. Oh yes, which is given the the subtitle "How Cooking Made Us Human," uh, and it's by Richard Wrangham, and he's an anthropologist. And this, I was clued into this book. I guess I think probably because we were talking about this same the same book by. Michael Pollan and my graduate student uh, Dane Jensen, who who apparently used to listen to the podcast, but now he's apparently behind and is no longer listening. But he said, "Oh, look, I have this great book. I'll lend to you called Catching Fire." And it really it's sort of an anthropological view on, and this the the thesis of of this guy uh, Rangham is basically that. Um, the discovery of cooking, the ability to process, quote, processed foods through cooking made nutrients more available and basically enabled uh, the explosion that happened that, that basically created Homo sapiens. It was the differentiating factor for Homo sapiens from, from uh, the, other, uh, the other apes and, and really made us, essentially made us human. So again, another um, not quite as uh, quick and, and, and I don't want to say entertaining because Poison's a book about people dying, but it's not as quick as quick a read as as Poison, but it's well worth reading. And, and there's a lot of good uh, food for thought in there as well. Cool, and that's still on my Amazon uh, wish list for for my next uh, order. Next time I give a, a guest lecture and someone oh. gives me money, I'm going to get it. A- excellent, or or you know maybe someone will buy it for you for your birthday. That's uh, possible. That's good. That's why hey, I have so a wish list. While, while we're talking about barbecue, um, can we talk about iced tea and this article that I put in the show notes about the Georgia barbecue shack? Oh, we sure can. Yes, barbecue. Yeah. So with this 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 show will be just all about the barbecue. Fantastic. Um, so uh, this is something that I saw in uh, Barf Blog, and again, we'll uh, we'll link to it in in show notes. Um, the Barf Blog headline is "Ice Tea?" Question mark eighteen now sick with E. coli O one five seven H seven from Georgia BBQ Shack. Uh, semicolon five H U S, and I'll just read from the article, and then we can we can talk about it a little bit. Um, uh, it says uh, it says here that public health officials are investigating iced tea among other menu items at a Stevens County barbecue restaurant as a possible source of a major E. coli outbreak that has sickened as many as eighteen people. Online Athens, I guess that's the uh, Athens, Georgia online newspaper, um, reports eleven people have been confirmed to have E. coli infection, and seven others are probable cases although their illnesses have not been confirmed by lab results, state officials say. Um, the risk is gone, says Nancy Nidham, spokeswoman for the State Department of Public Health. We are looking at everything on the menu, Nidham said Friday. Investigators are looking at the possibility of cross-contamination. Sherry Drenzik, a state epidemiologist at Public Health, said public officials learned of the outbreak after a DPH epidemiology surveillance officer noticed a cluster of E. coli cases, four in one week. Um, 
It says here that the Stevens County Health Department had also received complaints about the barbecue shack after some customers reported being ill after eating at the restaurant. Public health investigators interviewed all the patients who were sick as well as some diners who ate at the restaurant but did not become ill, tracking them down using credit card receipts. Um, and it says that food samples and environmental swabs taken from the restaurant on May 16th tested negative for any pathogens. So... Um, you know, I, and I, I, in reading that, now I realize that I don't see anything actually in there talking about um, iced tea. Now, I know that, that iced tea has definitely been on my radar since I spoke at IAFP a couple of years ago at a beverage uh, beverage division symposium. Um, and, and basically, and that we can link to, there's an, an article, uh, a Journal of Food Protection article by Mike Doyle and others looking at uh, fecal coliforms or coliforms in iced tea, and this was this was an issue that cropped up in the past, and and again many thought was just kind of a, 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 a tempest in a teapot. Again, I'm, I'm seem to be full of the puns today, um, relating to the fact that you had organisms that showed up as positive for a fecal coliform test, and those organisms are naturally present in iced tea, and so when you brew the the tea, those organisms will uh, will show up. But in in digging a little bit deeper, it looks like it. At least based on a patent by Mike Sorigliano and others at Lipton, uh, that that there is a potential for some of these organisms, including perhaps E. coli, to grow in iced tea. But do you do you know any anything more about this outbreak, Ben? I don't know anything more about the outbreak other than um, in a there's there was a video that went along with one of these stories where the uh, health department said that iced tea was being investigated. Um, okay. As as a common, you know, as you know, you uh, you know, anybody who's been in in a uh, barbecue uh, place uh, anywhere in the south, there's often uh, sweet tea as sort of a primary or unsweet tea as a as a primary drink. So, um, yeah, they said it was on the list, and it would be really difficult to pull that out uh, epidemiology wise. But yeah, so it was it was mentioned. It's just not in that um, that article specifically. Yeah. And so what? So what do you what do you think? Like, do you? I mean, you and you live in the South now, yeah. right? And you eat barbecue, right? So do, do. you do you worry? Because I I noticed since I I spoke at that beverage symposium, I've noticed that my tendency is to is to shy. Away. I mean, I like I like the idea. I mean, I don't really care for a sweet tea, um, uh, unsweetened tea that I can put a little bit of sugar in. I like, but I really th- this whole this whole issue has kind of got me thinking that maybe iced tea is riskier than than um one might think yeah well and, and it's i mean we've got, got to go back to the the process of of how that tea is made it's in especially in these uh independent restaurants that people take a lot of pride in how they make their tea right it's not like this is a um open up a a syrup and and pour it out it's it's absolutely um you know steeped uh and then ice is added to it uh there's a um you know often making it in large batches uh there's stirring involved it it's a uh, it, i mean to me it's a it just it's a more complex process than than someone who's going to you know than than a diet coke or a hot tea or a um or or coffee or whatever the other beverages are so there are more things that can go wrong and also it sits uh, you know it, it's it's definitely um from from what i what i've seen it's not often chilled 
um, you know, sort of right away. You may make a big batch of it, and then um, you know, you may put it in the cooler, you may put it into resealable containers, uh, and let it sit, and then serve it over top of ice. I mean, it all kind of depends. But there's a, I, I guess my my point is there's a preparation step involved in tea. I mean, you don't look at it often as a food, but in this case, in barbecue places, it is. Um, and and you've got this ice as an ingredient uh, as well that go, that goes into it. I think it's it, it's uh, you have a much larger potential for um, uh, a cross contamination, hygiene, food handler issue when it comes to to sweet tea or unsweet tea than you do for other beverages. Right, and people don't think I think of iced tea as being uh, something that needs sanitation or needs sterilization. Right. I, I know that when when this thing flared up a few years ago, and and Mike Doyle published his article, uh, there there were possibly some sanitary deficiencies identified in those restaurants, like they don't clean necessarily always clean the tea container. And again, especially in a situation where you have sugar, um, that is going to be a source of nutrients for microorganisms. And 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 again, the, the the containers are not always designed in such a way that they can be cleaned and sanitized. And so again, we kind of got into this a little bit in some of our work with uh, juice dispensers in, in university dining halls. Uh, the dispenser tips and the, and the dispenser assembly is not always designed in such a way that it can be cleaned, so they, there can be a, a sanitation problem there. Right, and um, it the those those uh, nozzle, not nozzles, but the all, all the equipment, I think you, you bring up a good point on um, the fact that the food handler may not think that it needs to be clean and sanitized at all. So you see, so because it because it's a beverage, because it's not something um, that they look at as a process. But I mean, if you were looking, I mean, I, I spent the, this morning talking with a um, someone who's trying to do some um, uh, a cook chill process and wants to do a HACCP plan uh, for uh, collard greens. The you, you put together a HACCP plan or at least a flow diagram for. Um, for iced tea, making iced tea, it, it probably doesn't look a whole lot different from what the collards look like, right? Like it's there's cooking, there's a vessel, there's there are all these uh, chances for contamination where it's very different from any other beverage that we have. Right. Well, and given especially given that it's a you know it's something that is like literally grown outside and literally dried on the ground, and we know we know from epidemiology, we know from surveys that spices which are not too dissimilar from teas and are pre prepared in, in similar ways, definitely have salmonella on a regular basis, definitely have can, can have uh, fecal coliforms or can have generic E. coli. So it's not really surprising to me that, that you would have – you would potentially have those organisms in, in tea products. Did you know, as we're talking about tea, um, that CDC put out a memo in 1996 on this? I did not. I didn't know. I'm going to send this to... I bet you're going to tell me about it. I am, yeah. CDC memo on bacterial contamination of iced tea. Uh, over the past six months, this is something that, they, that went out to uh, January 10th, 1996, all state and territorial epidemiologists. Um, over the past six months, there have been several newspaper and television reports con concerning contamination of iced tea with coliform. Since you may receive inquiries about this issue, we've summarized some of it. Um, and... So they, they talk about um, 
only aware of one instance where uh, illness might have been associated with iced tea in 1986. Four people who dined together at a Lubbock, Texas restaurant uh, experienced GI symptoms following the meal. No pathogen was identified. Um, they looked at um, uh, where was it? Uh, Analysis of iced tea from this restaurant and 50 other local restaurants revealed coliform counts uh, ranging from 0 to 1.3 million CFU per, per mil, with the predominant organism being Klebsiella, uh, or Klebsiella uh, E. coli and Enterobacter. Uh, um, no other illnesses were linked to it. Uh, and So, yeah, we'll link to this. It basically... Um, they say, tea is a beverage with a little history of disease trans transmission. Tea leaves may be contaminated with bacteria. Um, if iced tea is brewed at in inadequate temperatures or an improperly cleaned urn or stored for too long, it may grow bacteria. So there you go. Well, there, there you go. There, it's, uh, don't you wish the CDC had a podcast from 1996? We could have we <laughs> just listened to it. Yes. What would a podcast have been like in 1996? <laughs> I think they would have used tin cans and string and uh, and cardboard. There would have been a lot of cardboard. Um, cool. All right. Well, I'll throw that into the notes. So I got there was one other thing I wanted to talk about. Sure, let's do it. Um, and it uh, it's not barbecue, um, so we'll stray from that uh, a little bit. But there was uh, a pretty great article I put in. Um, uh, some a note here with the title "Arg," like a pirate, I guess. <laughs> I saw that. Um, and the title of the article uh, was "Food Safety Can Be Boiled Down to Three Magic Words: Clean, Cook, and Chill." Uh, and uh, this was a uh, article that appeared in the in Chieftain dot com, which uh, was is uh, Pueblo, uh, uh, Colorado. Um, and uh, a couple of choice quotes here coming from the health. It wasn't a good week for health department folks. Um, and so here uh, 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 some choice quotes that I pulled out of this article. We have foods that are making people sick that we've never seen before. Vicki Carlton, programs manager of the Pueblo City County Health Department's Consumer Protection Program. Bacteria and viruses change more rapidly than we do. They're adapting to their environment. We'll come back to that one. Quote, back in the day, you got more locally, said Carlton. It wasn't this mass-produced produce that's coming from all over the world. There are many areas for contamination before it reaches a store. And then my favorite part was this. The biggest preventative step consumers can take is to thoroughly wash all fruits and vegetables before eating them, Carlton said. For anything that with a rough texture like a cantaloupe, use a produce brush. Um, and then... Justin Gage, an environmental health specialist also within that group, said uh, recommending washing bananas, too. Because the bacteria and chemicals are likely to be on the peel. Wait a minute, Ben. I had a banana um, for breakfast this morning today, and I I didn't wash it. No, um, wait. It's still in, it's in the garbage can here in Bernadette's office. Um, oh, it looks really disgusting. Don't uh, go maybe near it. I'm in a micro lab. Maybe I should have them go culture that for pesticides. You yes, you should. Um, I'm surprised you've made it this far today. Well, I am feeling a little queasy now that you mention it. <sighs> you didn't wash it. I can't believe it, Don. I, you know, and I haven't been washing bananas my whole life. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Uh, oh, it, the thing, articles like this just make me upset. This is, these are the so angry ones, right? Like, yeah, you know, yeah, and it's just like I, I appreciate that the public health people are trying to be helpful and they're trying to get the word out. And 
but this this stuff makes me insane too because it's like well you know let's let's give people some credit okay let's assume that they they have some intelligence and then let's try to explain things in a way that exposes the complexity and the nuance that gives them that gives them hopefully something useful to do but that doesn't fill their head with nonsense and yeah i yeah i i sympathize it's yeah it, it's arg that's all i could think of um when i when i read it because even even the in the attempt to make it really really simple they kind of forget about cross contamination like <laughs> like one of the ones that matters here that you know let's let's just tell people the really simple ones let's just make it so we'll, we'll get some um some benefit and by doing that by sanitizing that message really they get nothing across other than oh, oh man i should have washed the banana that i just ate which which is the wrong message entirely right um, right and what's the and what's the and what's the purpose of this article anyway uh, I, I guess the the idea is that okay, so some like it like it says in the first line, summer's here, time to take your fruits and vegetables for a swim. <laughs> but you know, there's washing is not going to be uniformly effective. Um, we don't want people to wash their packaged leafy greens that have already been washed, and we have an expert report, right? Uh, you know, advising against that. I mean, what what is what's the purpose of this article? What is it we're trying to do? I, I you know, I just don't get it. I don't know, and I mean, you just. Um, let's, let's take just for some very current, current stuff. Let's take a look at this cantaloupe. Cause you know, we could re retitle this podcast, the last 15 episodes, cantaloupe food safety talk. But <laughs> in, in here it says, you know, for anything with a rough te texture, like cantaloupe, use a brush and, and the biggest preventative step that consumers could take thoroughly washing fruits and vegetables, except, you know, you just, you, you just co-authored a paper with, the uh, um, uh, I think it was Linda and Michelle and Dee Lee that, that right. talked about temperature control. I mean, really, if we're looking at cantaloupe washing, it's maybe going to do something. But what well, really and, matters is temperature control. Right, and and I don't and I don't have any evidence that that temperature control had anything to do with the big listeria mm -hmm. outbreak. But boy, I sure bet it had something to do with it. I would bet I, again. I have absolutely no proof. I, I would bet um, any amount of money. Well, not any amount of money. I would bet hundreds, dozens of dollars. I would, <laughs> I would bet. I would bet tens of tens of dollars that that there is there is temperature plays a role in that. Um, so yeah, people maybe they washed it, maybe they didn't wash it. Um, Again, you know, uh, the people that in that outbreak, many elderly people were affected. I know from having conversations with my own um, with my own parents that cantaloupe is a favorite food of theirs. Again, it's only two of them. They'll they'll get one cantaloupe. Um, they'll make it last over several days. It might even last longer. Hopefully, hopefully, my parents have a good temperature control in their fridge. But some might not. Some might not know that temperature control is required. I, I keep coming back to the fact that you can take a picture of a piece of cantaloupe that's sat out at on the lab bench for 24 hours. It looks identical to the piece of cantaloupe that you just freshly cut. And yet the one that sat out at the lab bench or sat out in the incubator with a, with a few listeria on it at the beginning of the 24 hour period of 24 or 48 hours is simply loaded with listeria. So yeah, that there's, there's an important message that, uh, that they could have, uh, they could have taken there. And, and, and this is, this is a, a, again, a little bit of a subtle message, but that is a very important one to get out to people. And I actually, I just had a recent uh, phone conversation 
conversation or email conversation with an extension colleague um, in the state about this very issue and what do you do for safety when uh, of foods that are for picnics and, and, and getting across this idea that, okay, so some things are okay when they're intact. Cantaloupe, tomatoes that are intact, um, those don't need temperature control. And then after they've been cut, they do need temperature control. And, and for quality, you want to refrigerate the head of lettuce, and then it, but after you've, you've, you've shredded it and made it into a salad, you definitely want to have temperature control. So, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of really good messages that might have been helpful if they made it into this, this article. Uh, uh, let me... Let, let me read one more passage from this article, and then I have a philosophical question for you. <laughs> so this last one, just you know, talking about how we sort of um, devolved—not devolved—we've we've kind of moved into temperature control. There's a really interesting passage in here uh, that uh, Carlton, uh, the health department star, says: um, keep everything. You know, refrigerated, thir- 41 degrees or below. Although Carlton recommends 38 degrees. Like just ra- randomly, I guess that you, we you know the forty one would would be great, and that would be nice for science. But you know what? I kind of just recommend you start with thirty eight degrees. Um, I just thought that was you know ridiculous. Um, well, and right, and and here I've been ranting about refrigeration and how the article doesn't mention it. Well, it does mention it in the context of apparently meat and dairy products. Right, right, exactly. So, uh, right, and and yeah, and why thirty eight? You know, because it's better than I mean, 41. Would, 37 would be safer. Obviously. Hey, you know, if if your fridge went to 11, that would be even better. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you first be, would be frozen, but um, but but yeah, why 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 38? Is that based on anything? No, no, it's garbage. Okay, so here's the here's the philosophical question. You and I look at an article like this, and and, and you know, Doug and I we have email conversations about this, and I try to send stuff like this out to my grad students. And, and really, with the with the idea that this is this is not this is unacceptable food safety communication. Like like they missed a, a, a chance here to to talk about things that that we and I say we you know you and I and and, and Doug and and probably many of our colleagues um, would identify as food safety risks and they missed it. They focused on other things that they didn't really know about. So the philosophical question is. What do we do about it? You know, we we have this podcast and and we do a bunch of stuff on Barf Blog, but it's just not. I mean, how do we get to this group? How do we how do we talk to um, to health department folks? And and I shouldn't put it all into you know not. There are some amazing health department individuals. I mean, our our really good friend in Jersey, um, Michelle Samara Tim, gets this, knows how to do this, how to how to identify hazards and focus attention and messages on those hazards and know that that a year from now those hazard the the, the hazards that are important are gonna uh, you know, potentially change, and more information is going to come up, and more science is going to be out there, and we can better change our messages. But it's stuff like this that really drives me crazy. Because had someone spent time paying attention to food safety beyond the dogmatic stuff that's out there, and maybe that's the problem. Maybe that's the answer to my philosophical question: is we have to change the dogmatic information that's out there. But if they had gone beyond that and had looked at the last 10 outbreaks that CDC had, in, uh, had investigated and looked at the the causes of those multi-state outbreaks, they wouldn't have written. They wouldn't have given this interview, or I hope they wouldn't have. And I, I sound, I mean, pissed off about it. I am because I feel like we're like we not. I want to change the world, but but our 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 group of 
food safety communication folks that are out there, we're not we're failing if if stuff like this keeps getting you know spouted out there because there's because there's 50 of us or 100 of us or 500 of us and there's 20,000 of them or whatever. Um, not a I don't know. I'm I'm ranting. Don, help me. Help me here. What do you think? How do we how do we fix it? Well, you know, one thing you can do is to call it out on things like Barf Blog and to call it out on things like the podcast, right? So we mention it and we mention what, what, what we think is wrong. Now, that, that obviously, you know, in many ways we're preaching to the choir or we're, we're preaching to a group of people that is not necessarily the group that wants to hear us. Um, I think part of it is meeting those people on their turf. So maybe that means getting invited to speak at – uh, conferences like I think Nacho, not to be confused with the the tortilla chips, but there's a, a Nacho conference, a National Association for Health Officials, county county city and county health officials. I think that's what that stands for. Um, there are other there are other venues uh, where we can reach them. Um, there the the. Uh, uh, there, there are journals that those folks read. So, so an article on crafting a good risk communication message that appears in their journals, right? So reaching, reaching out to them. And I'm blanking on uh, on the names of well, we've got, uh, yeah. of those those journals and of the of the of their sure. societies beyond beyond Nacho. But I think that's part of it. And maybe the maybe the way too to begin this dialogue is to reach out to people like like Michelle in in New Jersey and say, Hey, look. We want to talk to you about some of your colleagues and and how can what do you think? Because we don't know that audience, right? We don't no. know the things. I mean, to a certain extent, I, I know some of them now through participation at Conference for Food Protection, and so that so I get that would be there would be people we could reach out to there. Um, there there are examples of folks that we that we you know know do a good job. Um, and again, you know the your your Freudian uh, Freudian slip uh, <laughs> talking about uh, somebody who had a keen sense for food safety in in Oregon and. And in fact, it was Bill. Uh, it was Keen spelled with an E, just like Bill Keen spells his name. Um, you know, reaching out to people like Bill and saying, "Hey, look, Bill, send him a copy of the article and say, hey, look, th- th- clearly there's there's some mistakes here. How can we reach this audience, your your peers or your colleagues, um, to to get the word out to them? But I, but I think it's you know, in part, it's it's making fun of them a little bit through through the podcast and through and through Barf Blog, but it's also then reaching reaching out to them. So what do you think of that? I like that. I like that. I I, I felt yeah, I've had a similar revelation, I guess, on the on the retail side of things um, when it comes to uh, to cantaloupe washing. You know, this will make sense in a second, but I, I, I think that, you know, I've, we call people out, um, in, you know, in our in in the media that we that we currently own and and have, but I've I've recently thought that it would be worth me going to FMI, and and talking to the folks that make decisions. Um, for food safety and purchasing around cantaloupes, that you know what, cantaloupes that are washed, increase in risk for you in, in you know in your business. So how do we what what do we need to do to 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 you know provide you data uh, and provide information so you can make better choices? I think it's the same. Like what you're suggesting is is the same kind of thing. I mean, I would love <laughs> I would love to to show up at Neha or or Nacho or or AFDO or, or whoever um, the, the group is and, and throw this article up and, 
and, and sort of deconstruct it and, and throw up the, um, the, the health department guy from Brazos County who ate the, the taco and deconstruct that and just say, look, this is, this isn't good. It's not good science and it's not good communication. So let's, you know, in a, in a non, I, I always sound very combative when I when I talk about it. I'd be much huggier and cuddlier than that. Um, in, in the way that well, you're you're Canadian, that's in your DNA, right? Right, right, exactly. This is I my uh, currently my hockey persona has just come out. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forget about hockey. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Um, but I'll, I would get my my regular uh, Tim Hortons persona back on uh, for for when I would do this. But but I mean that's the that that's the stuff. I I, I think that's a good. That's a good approach. That's that's what we need to do is go meet them in the places where they're already talking. Because you're right, we don't know them so well. Like it's it's not a group that that interacts with us at IAFP. Um, we we although we we have very similar focus um, or foci uh, around you know food protection and keeping food safe. We have, we've different. It's a different group. It's different mechanism, and it's it's really different training. I mean. The um, uh, registered environmental health sanitarian folks um, get a, a whole bunch of different stuff beyond food microbiology, and, and we're sort of living and breathing this stuff every day. So, um, yeah, I think no, that's a good that, that, that's a good suggestion. In fact, just added myself a little task here to email Michelle and Bill Keen um, uh, about this article. Yeah, and, and then thanks for thinking of Neha. That was the one that I that I couldn't think of. Um, you know, and the other thing too. Again, since we started at the beginning of the podcast talking about Bill Marler, we can wrap it up. Uh, make it make it all about Bill today. Um, one of the things that he's done that's just been absolutely tremendous is sponsoring scholarships to bring yeah. these environmental health people to IAFP. Often they don't have a big travel budget, um, and yeah, my gosh, let's bring them to our meeting. Well, part of part of the message is taking it out to them, but part of the message too is. Allowing them to come to us and to hear, to meet all these great people that really do understand food safety. And yeah, and again, not to apologize for them, but man, they have a tough job. I mean, I teach the public health microbiology section or occasionally teach the public health microbiology section of our environment and public health class, which which basically teaches people to be uh, registered environmental uh, health professionals. And uh, they have a huge amount that they have to know. Restaurant food safety is only a tiny slice of that. They're covering... Uh, uh, swimming pools and um, uh, uh, public public bathing. They're covering septic fields. I mean, just the the list just goes on and on of the things that they have to cover. So, um, and I think too, reaching out to some of our colleagues on the on the uh, public health side um, or on the uh, on the food industry side, certainly reaching out to FMI people like. You know, Mike Roberson that we know listens to the show, uh, Larry Cole, um, uh, Jill Hollingsworth, uh, who, who I think still uh, does some stuff for, for FMI. I'm sure they would also be very receptive to trying to find ways to network with that audience. Yeah, it, I, I think it's – I feel like we, we need to go a little more on the, the proactive side and go to them sometimes. You know, I just haven't done that really in, in my – you know, short career on this. So that was, uh, that's good advice. I was, I, I thank you for, uh, um, sort of giving me a little more to, to go on than what I was already, you know, I was already thinking that, that direction, but it's glad to hear that you thought the same thing. So, so oh, yeah, absolutely. And then, and part of it is get, get men, maybe making a plan to go to their meetings, find out how you organize a symposia, yeah. uh, symposium at one of their meetings, uh, you know, I mean, and then, and then get on the program and, and do a session on, you know, risk communication, food safety, risk communication. I bet they'd, I bet they'd uh, want to hear that. Well, we'll find out. 
I'm going to go. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Cool. Well, hey, um, I, I don't know what time it is uh, in Portugal. But I <laughs> neither do I. Right. But I but I know but I know it's about five thirty in Brazil. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Not bad, right? Um good, yeah. so uh so yeah, we've gone we've got an hour and a half here, unless there's uh, anything else uh, burning in your um in in your uh buccal cavities. Um, no, no, and just on the off chance that my my taxi driver or my my uh, my my car driver is is again twenty minutes early, we should probably wrap. So let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Well, um, like at the top of the show, we mentioned uh, to to the listeners, if you uh, like what we do, go to, to iTunes, mention um, uh, rate us there, and even if you don't like what we do, uh, rate us um, and provide any feedback. Feel free to email Don or I. Both of our contact information is at the. Uh, food safety talk website you can feel free to sign up for the newsletter uh, so you can get the uh, edited version of the notes uh, delivered directly to your email inbox or however you receive email some some people might uh, use a fax service where um, their email is sent to a fax number and it's then faxed to them i don't know how it works uh, for everyone but do sign up for that for that newsletter if you're interested and uh, don as always um, uh, sayonara which is, I think, how you say goodbye in Portuguese. Um, it's been... <laughs> Arigato. I, are, no, yeah. oh, Mr. Robato. Um, oh, this is... That's not good. Uh, anyway, this is this has been fun, and thanks for uh, making time in your, um, your schedule uh, while you're in Brazil to, to catch up, and we'll do this again in a couple of weeks. That sounds great, Ben. Thanks a lot. That worked great. So br- turns out Brazil has awesome internet. Yeah, you 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 got uh, kind of bro- robotic uh, on me at one point, but um, other than that, I think the call was uh, was good. And I think as long as I sounded okay, I think you're you're set to do the audio, and yep. I'm set to do the show notes. So we should be uh, we should be good. Yeah, you sounded great. No no great. delay, nothing. That was uh, that was fantastic. Excellent. Um, so that's good. Okay, so I got show notes. You got the written notes um i updated while we were talking i put more notes into the fst uh notes text file okay I, and i resaved it to the um to dropbox so i don't okay. know if you had it so open I, so what i do before every episode is i i i copy the existing one and i rename it the next number and then that's what i work from so i have uh, uh notes for fst 43 open right now but i don't think i've edited it at all i'm, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and just close close out of the file though so okay. yep okay good and then um so i just just so we can get those in there so because the two or three things i talked about weren't weren't in there for right. um andreas Okay. Yeah, and I and I've been I've been collecting stuff with uh, that awesome uh, that awesome tool, um, uh, whatever it was called that you that uh, Brett Terpster rate made. Yeah. So, yep. Um, yeah, we're uh, we added a, a new individual to our notes or our um, uh, 
uh, news team. Um, so that's why I emailed you about that, the app, the Brett Terpster app. Blinks, oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Tab links. Because um, we're trying to figure yes. a little a little better workflow for for our folks. We Safari, the the um, text like reader list has really helped, um, but I think that um, tab links might be the way to, for us to go. I don't know. Um, so anyway, thanks for sending that on yesterday. Oh, no, not not a problem. Um, happy, happy to help. And thank you very much for that sending on the Brazilian uh, visa stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's. Uh, I mean, it's. I mean, unless you really like dealing with bureaucracies and standing in line, it's oh. just it's just well worth the money to pay an expediting service. So yeah, I wonder. Danny and I had a conversation. I wonder if I have to do it, like, because I have a Canadian passport, but it shouldn't matter, right? Because the Brazilian consulate, they don't care where your visa, like, where your passport's coming from. It's well, and that. you should and you should check because as a Canadian. You might not have the same issues because I don't know if we talked about this, but one of the reasons – not one of the reasons. The reason why the Brazilians put this requirement on the U.S. is the U.S. – it's basically a mirror image of the requirements that U.S. puts on Brazilians. So hmm. if Canadians are nicer to Brazilians, then the Brazilians will be nicer to Canadians. That seems unlikely. So. Um, <laughs> so you should you should you should you should look on the look on the Brazilian website and find out um, like like do a, do a web search for Brazilian visas in Canada um, because you may not have that same hassle. We I know that Canada and Brazil has had a couple of pissing matches over beef and trade, hmm. and so I don't think they get along very well. It's funny how the, the, I, the only other place that I've run into visa issues is actually going to Dubai, and it's as a Canadian there was some conflict between landing rights at Pearson International Airport and Emirates. <laughs> oh, great. Which which meant the first time I went to Dubai, everything was awesome. The second time I went to Dubai, I needed to get a visa that, that Bobby had to like I don't, I don't know how well, he worked as magic, uh, and I had to send him some stuff and then it all arrived and everything was fine. Um, but, but, and then apparently if I go back this fall, um, the, 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 uh, conflict has been settled. So Canadians no longer need visas to go to Dubai. Like, it's funny how that, that becomes the, oh yeah, well, we'll slap a visa on your visitors. Mm-hmm. That'll, yeah. Look, quick web search looks like you do need a visa if I, you're a Canadian. Yeah. I think, I think that's the case. Um, Cool. Okay. Well, I appreciate um, you sending that on because it. Looks oh no, like no, no problem. And and yeah, and I'm assuming those expediting services would work for Canadians as well. But anyway, I, like I said, I, I I had very good experience with the one that I used. So good. Um, I will do that. Uh, did you have to send them your your passport as well? Yes. Okay. And how you long have to physically? And this and I realized like I was all set to mail my passport off to them. Yeah. A few days before I was about to leave the country on another trip, and I'm like, "Huh, yeah, I probably shouldn't mail on my passport because I won't be able to go on this other trip." So you you have to, and and you have to allow you know several week several weeks, and they'll give you at time estimates on the website. But you definitely want a situation where you're not traveling where you'll need a visa, where you'll need a passport to mail your visa off to them. Right. Well, I will. Uh, I will probably do that in August and September, where I don't need a visa. There you or go. A passport. So cool. Hey, so I'm going to the UK in in the fall too. Oh, so excellent! Got, so I got yeah, Brazil and the UK. I'm going to go spend a week with Carol Wallace at uh, the University of Central Lancashire, and she is I don't know if you know Carol, but she is of the Hassop textbook Mortimer and Wallace. Oh, okay. Textbook. So Carol's uh she runs a um, 
uh, a distance education master's program. Actually, um, Andrew Clark, our good friend uh, uh, of Gordon and Andrew, just mm-hmm. uh, finished his degree uh, with with Carol. Uh, so distance from Canada uh, to central Lancashire. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I'm going to go spend a week with her and um, go tour around. So those, those are my big, those are my big trips. Oh, it sounds, sounds like fun. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, yeah. And then we can, I mean, and we can, you know, it, I think it would be good. I know your philosophy has always been to try to, as soon as we get it to put it out, but I think it might be, I don't know if it matters, but to, to try to like just to phase them so that it's every that they come out every two weeks, no matter when we record them. Yeah, that's a good idea too. But so so if we recorded one on the tenth, and we could we could release it the week of the seventeenth, and then we could record another one uh, in July. Oh, that's going to be tricky because I'm going to be in Copenhagen. But anyway, we'll make it work. Well, yeah, we'll figure it out. We've always we've never really run into problems. Just once where we had to where we had to get guests, right? Bats and and Chris Gunter to fill right, in for right, and that was yeah, that was like right at the early beginning. On, yeah, I was thinking we might want so um, I will see PC in the next couple of days, and I'll make sure that he has uh, headphones. I did see him last week, but it never came up. Um, he he's really wants to come on, so we'll 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 get him headphones. But I'd like Michelle. I think Michelle Samaritan might be a really good podcast guest for us. Oh, absolutely. Um, so as I, I've got a, a message here to email her, I'm going to ask her um, if she wants to do a, do a podcast. And we can ask yeah, her I, that question. We'll have that discussion on how do, we, how do we reach her peeps. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Oh, and speaking of podcasts um, and, and guests, I was, almost, I was almost on the 5 by 5 network on Memorial Day. Whoa! So I, I had uh, – I guess I had tweeted to Dan, um, hey, it's Memorial Day. I see you're doing an episode of The Frequency. Um, you want to talk about food safety? And he's like, oh, well, the, no, the, uh, the Hattie, I think, is, is running The Frequency now, and it's it's gone from a daily show to a weekly show. Um, and she already had a guest lined up. But we'll, we can do a special later in the day. And, and then they're, I'm listening to the frequency, and, and they're like, "Okay, well, that's it. Um, we're going to go get some lunch, and then we're going to come back later and do food safety." And then I, I like tweeted back to him, and he just never followed up. <laughs> so, so maybe they did food safety with somebody else. Was there? Did you hear? Anything? No, there was no. no. There was there was there was nothing, and and I just it kind of I kind of felt well. I mean, apparently that's that's kind of the way Dan is. I mean, he's just like he's in the moment, or yeah. he's like he's on something else. So anyway, it's okay. I, I, I gave it a shot. I thought, I thought, uh, I thought it might turn into something, but I, I'm not giving up. No, you'll get back on there. <laughs> you'll get back, you'll get not back like on. you. Apparently you could just email them and you get, you get on any show. It's random. It's right. Ra- you just got to email them at the right time. And you tried, you tried. <laughs> yeah. That, that was, I, I don't even know how I got the last one. I think I just like tweeted at him or something. Yeah. And it's he, very much. I think he's just very much in the moment. Like yeah. I said, very much spur of the moment. Hey, um, so before we go, two new music situations. We usually talk about this early on, but we'll talk about it in After Dark. Sure. Um, okay, so you know about Daft Punk? Yes. Oh, I, l- I listened to their – I got. I bought their new album. Do you like it? I think it's yeah, great. I do. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. The, so that that's item number one. Second thing is this band called The National, who I didn't know before, but apparently everyone else in the world knows about. Do you know about them? Uh, no, but I've seen I've seen in the fade um, like raving about them. Yeah, um, 
so download so last week when i was traveling to lincoln i had my two hip grad students with me and i was like hey i don't know anything about this band but you guys are hip and young and cool you probably know all about them and they're like we don't know what you're talking about so <laughs> so i said oh okay uh so i downloaded their uh the album and i listened to it three times and i emailed ellen my grad student back yesterday and said i know why none, none of us had heard of them i think they suck and so, so although I, th- this one's you know, a, a crazy one where, um, they, I mean, critically acclaimed, they were on Colbert, everyone's talking about their new album, everything's big, and I listened to it, and I really don't like it. <laughs> okay. So, so uh, anyway, uh, Daft Punk, though, um, two thumbs up. Uh, the yeah, but apparently a lot of people. I was looking yeah. at the iTunes reviews, and, and a lot of people really don't like it. But I, I, I've got, I haven't really got into it. I'm really enjoying it. I think it's great. I think, I mean, I, I was, I was a fan of their last two. I don't know if it's their last two big albums, but there was an album that came out right when I was in like my last year of high school. Um, and I, I love that album. And then they had another one uh, right after that that was that was good when I was in you know, I don't know, second or third year university and it was all over the place. And then I kind of like lost them for a long time for 10 years. Um, and, uh, then download this and I think it's, I think it's great. So, um, so anyway, travel, you know, I always find that I listen to more music when I travel and I get the sense that you do the same thing too. Cause you're, uh, tweeting about this is my jam a lot more. Oh yes, yes, absolutely. So yeah, girl, the, this is my jam this week is a girl from Ipanema. And it looks like first I was going to Rio and then I'm not going to Rio. It looks like I'm, the trip to Rio is back on. So, oh, well, there you go. You're that's fan, That's great. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All right. Um, so we should probably go. All right. Um, that sounds good. Um, so I will talk to you, uh, in a week. Sounds good. Uh, we'll, I'll throw more stuff into the notes file and it'll be awesome. Good. Yeah. So you're, you'll, you'll, uh, send the audio file to, uh, Andreas and I'll post the, I'll post the links that I have to him and we're, we're good to go. Sounds good. I'll talk to you later. All right. Take care, Ben. Bye-bye. Bye.